you are here with Andrea and me, Annabelle. This is the Boundless Book Club, the podcast from the Emirates Literature Foundation dedicated to the good and the great books in life. Right now, among people who love books like we do, there are two things happening. Every man and his dog is putting together lists of the best books of the year, which can be a dangerous and contentious activity. This happens to coincide with a very large number of us queuing at the gift wrapping station in the bookshops, as we want to share the most profound, funny, moving, useful, or life-changing books we have ever read with our loved ones. Here with us today to discuss the books we love to give away, we have Mark Fiddy's Poet and Keen Reader. His collection, The Rainbow Factory, is available from all the good places. Mark, welcome. Hi there. It's uh, great to be on the Boundless Book Club. Thank you for joining us. Before we get into the books that we insist on giving the people around us and why we do it, uh, let's take a look at the titles that feature on the 2020 Books of the Year list. And I believe Andrea has done all of the prep for this. Oh my goodness. Don't say I never do anything for you. I've done so much research. There are so many books. So in the interest of science, I have collected as many of the titles as I could fit in before losing interest in an Excel spreadsheet for some very sophisticated analytics. Okay. So I've looked at the lists published by the Financial Times, the BBC, the New York Times, the Guardian, the Washington Post, and Time Magazine. Two books have featured in five of the six best books of 2020 lists. And before I, actually, before I tell you, can you guess? I'm gonna try and proceed what I wanna talk about later. I think Piranesi by Susanna Clarke will be on the list. Mm. Interesting. Annabelle, I know for a fact that you have read at least one of these two books. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh no, this is driving me mad. Okay, should I just put you out of your misery? Please, I can't remember a single book I've read at this moment. <laughs> okay, so Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. By all accounts, absolutely wonderful. And I know you've read that. Yes. And the second book, which was a surprise to me, was The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, oh. which has been recommended to me by so many people whose opinions I really respect. And she's only 30 years old, Britt Bennett, which I find, frankly, a little bit rude. But <laughs> what talent. Rude. Rude, rude. So then the, the two of them, uh, I think we, you know, you have to read if they are on that many of the best book lists. And then we have a number of books that were in joint second place that were on three of these lists. And they include uh, Sugar Bane uh, by Douglas Stewart, who won the Booker Prize, This Mournable Body by Tsitsi Dangaremka, um, who we talked about in our previous episode about the Booker shortlist. And uh, Mark, you'd be delighted to know, Piranesi was on three of the lists, so you weren't far off. And then we had Homeland Elegies by Ayad Akhtar, A Children's Bible by Lydia Millet, The Mirror and the Light, of course, by Hilary Mantel, and Jack by Marilyn Robinson. So lots of really uh, familiar titles that I think I now feel like I have to read all of them. But that's the thing about 2020 lists is they're great when you read them and you go, oh yeah, that sounds great. That sounds great. It's like, when, when, when will I read these books? Yeah, I know. When, when. That's what comes with every list, right? There's that responsibility. Yeah, the pressure. <laughs> to, to, to go through it. Just check they were right. And I'm going to put this all in our show notes or on our, 
uh, maybe a, in a link to our put a link to our blog in the show, show notes so you can look through the best of the best. There's one that I hadn't heard of that's been mentioned on two of the best lists uh, called Where the Wild Ladies Are, which sounds absolutely amazing, which is feminist retellings of traditional Japanese folk tales, which just sounds mind blowing. So I'm really glad I've gone through this and I'm gonna be buying lots more books that I probably won't have time to read now. I mean, that's standard. You know, if you're not doing that, like I would be worried about you, Andrea. <laughs> I know, I know. Can I just go to the first point that you made there, Annabelle, about buying gifts for people? And mm. if these are the sorts of books that you would potentially want to give someone. What, the ones that you just mentioned? Mm-hmm. The sort mm. of the best best lists, best books of the year list books. So it's, it's tricky because you have to establish what people may already have read. So I think you, you have to like know somebody fairly well, I think, to get them, to get them a book. And also the, the thing that's also slightly stressful about it is it's a lovely thing to give somebody a book. There's also kind of pressure for them to like it almost because if you don't like what they've chosen for you, it's kind of implies that they don't understand you. And there's actually a chance for it to hurt the friendship more than I think with a conventional gift, like a t-shirt or a pair of socks. You know, if you don't like them, oh, they got the wrong color. But if you get someone a book that isn't the right fit for them, it's like on a deeper emotional level, you don't get them. So there is a lot more pressure with getting it right. So I don't think I would just choose one of the books <laughs> on the 2020 list. It would have to be a very personal conscious decision. And there are, there are books that I've got for people in the past that kind of tie into the choice I've got today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that for now. What do you think, Mark? Well, I think that's a great insight because, I, I mean, I, I go a little step further, actually. I never give someone a book unless I've read it, <laughs> partly because for that very reason, I just, you know, there's a great danger of getting it terribly wrong. On the other hand, on the upside, there's the other thing about giving books, which I think is, is like giving chocolate. You know, or, or, or something you can share afterwards. Because the great thing about books is, you know, you can give it to someone, then a month later, sit down and say, so what did you think? You know, mm -hmm. how did the characters come over? You know, what, what did you think of the plot? And so a book is a gift that keeps on giving in that sense, because you've got that kind of next stage of communication where you share something around the book. And I think that's often, you know, that's a good friendship. That's, you know, that's a close family member that you would do that kind of thing with. It's lovely. Yeah. Um, I think, I think also, I wonder about the point that you made, Annabelle, that you can almost hurt the friendship if you give someone the wrong book. And I wonder if that is specifically among people who read a lot, because I feel like my mother-in-law could give me a book that would mean very little other than that. They talked about it on the radio and I thought you might like it. And yeah. if I wouldn't like it, I wouldn't take that personally. Whereas if someone you're closer to gives you a book that just gets you very wrong it would be different yeah I think honestly I'm just being a little bit dramatic <laughs> that's okay it's it's all the festive spirit um everything's a little bit more intense uh so yeah I'm just I guess I'm just being a little bit more dramatic yes if you give people the wrong book it will ruin the friendship you will end lives don't do it people. end in tears yes <laughs> also I would caution anyone who actually receives a book and opens that package, and there's the book. And if your first reaction is, oh, it wasn't really quite what I wanted, I would give it time. 
Mm. I would dip in and have a look. It happened to me a few Christmases ago. I got the collected works of Ted Hughes. Now, Ted Hughes, good poet, great place in the canon of poetry, uh, 20th century, tall male English northern poets. But, you know, I wasn't a great fan, to be honest. It was when I started dipping through and reading all the other stuff that people don't normally see. You know, that's when I really began to get where he was coming from. And a lot of the kind of stereotypical, you know, kind of pro-plath, anti-Hughes kind of line I was taking just disappeared because I began to see other work. I began to see it in a different light. So I, I do caution people to just, you know, give it a, give it a day or two, persevere. If you do get a book, you don't instantly love. Yeah, that's a really, really lovely point, actually. So there's always that thing where, do you share a novel that you love or you try to give something that you think they will love and they're not always the same thing. But if you do share a novel that you love and whoever you've given it to also love it, then you will have a whole different type of conversation than if you've given them a selection of short stories. Fantastic points. I think the one thing that perhaps we can agree on though is what not to buy people. And that's the passive aggressive book purchase that is intended to help them mend their ways in some way. So Self-help if you think, books. yeah, so if you think that somebody is a little bit messy and you get them that, you know, the Marie method and you, they've never mentioned to you, oh, I'd really like to improve this part of my life. Can <laughs> you help me? If they haven't specifically said that to you, don't get them passive aggressive. Here's a book you might like, you know, sort your <laughs> That's not okay. That's not, you know, what yeah. the spirit of Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate is about. Yeah. That's a very, very fair point. Mm. Diet books. Don't buy diet books. <laughs> yeah, big mistake. But speaking of the books that we should be giving people, do we have specifics in mind? Like you go to, this is what I would give people as a gift and who would like to begin? I'd like to hear from Mark. What would you give people this year? Um, it's called Perinati and it's by Susanna Clark. Now you will remember Susanna Clark from that blockbuster 15 years ago, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Sorrel, which I think at Bloomsbury, it was Bloomsbury's second biggest seller after Harry Potter, right? They went ahead and printed quarter of a million volumes of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Sorrel before it even, you know, before, before it even hit the bookshop. They were so certain it was going to work. And if you remember, it was a massive doorstop. It was 800 pages. But the most incredible... Um, story of two dueling magicians in early in Regency England. So there are the ingredients of a very good Susanna Clarke story. Historical backdrop, you've got magicians, you've got otherworldliness overplayed on top of, you know, um, something, something that really happens. Now, it's been a long time since she's written, uh, written anything. And this uh, Piranesi came out this year. It's much shorter, 200 pages. But it's an extraordinary blend of myth, of philosophy. It's a kind of philosophical whodunit, is probably the way I describe it. And there's a the character, the main character, Piranesi. You'll be aware maybe that Piranesi was the famous draftsman in 18th century Italy who painted all of those wonderful vistas of ruins and temples and people on the grand tour brought them back. So Piranesi is the main character. And he inhabits this world of temples and uh, vestibules and a villa of, of infinite number of rooms. It's an extraordinary visual idea that 
Susanna Clarke conjures up within the first few pages. And through the, the whole, the way the plot winds towards a thrilling conclusion is that we're given clues all the way through that actually give Piranesi a little more character. We find out a little more about Piranesi and the relationship with the other. And they're like breadcrumbs that go through the book and you're following it through. A bit like you're following, like Piranesi follows through the, the marble uh, vestibules of this enormous villa with no end. It's an extraordinary book. And she does the same thing she did in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Sorrel, which is mix together the kind of the, the mythological and the magical and the speculative. In fact, one critic, I think, called this, called you know, her kind of genre, and I think you might put a few more people in it, as a magical archaism. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this extraordinary mix of the modern and, and, the, and the antique, the fabulous and the real. So, and, and as I say, it's, it's a kind of whodunit because in the end, everything is transformed. You go from, you know, different worlds interlaced. I won't say any more than that. It's not science fiction. It is, it is uh, as I say, a philosophical, um, uh, if, if there is any, anything that is a kind of uh, speculative inquiry. But it's really readable, um, very tightly written. And what I recommend is you, you read it in one session. Find one of those, you know, the, those magical, lock, lock yourself away for a couple of hours and start it and live in that world with Pyrenees, you know, and, and take Pyrenees' steps. It's so absorbing. And I think also the other thing about this book right now, because it's in a kind of labyrinth, it's very appropriate for lockdown. You know, if you're sort of spending a lot more time in your, in your home, uh, you get to know every thread of carpet. You know, you get to reposition your plant 15 times a day. And in a sense, that's the kind of world that Piranesi is living in, in this kind of, you know, this, this, this closed labyrinth where, you know, will he escape, won't he? You know, you only find out at the end. Is he a bit, is he socially distanced from people as well, including the other? That's so spot on. Yes, he is. At the beginning, he almost has no character because we see the character building with the more clues and the more evidence he discovers as he's going around this this you know enormous infinite villa so um there's a kind of otherworldliness about him there's something of bartleby the scrivener there's this kind of you know interest in detail and and, and noting things down but this distance from from real contact with people there's a little bit of the description that reminds me of the seven deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle as well, with the sort of the villa and the, the sort of not understanding what's happening and it just builds and mm. you're still kind of in the dark of what the story is. And I'm glad it's only like 200 pages because I kept, I kept hearing <laughs> about the book. You know the pain, like we have so many books that we have to read in a short space of time for the, you know, for the podcast, mm. for the festival, etc. And then there's always like these 2020 lists and, and beyond any list, you know, that there are these fantastic books and you think, and particularly with this one, I thought, that's exactly what I want to read. But, and, and I think in my head I was thinking, but if it's the same length as Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, there is no oh, yeah. way that's happening before summer, yeah. you know? Um, mm. So no, fantastic. I think I'm, I'm actually ready to maybe give that a go. Who would you give it to, Mark? Would you give it to just anyone or is there a particular type of person you would give this to? Mm. That's a very good question. Um, yeah, I would, we have a book group here. I would, would definitely give it to the, to everyone in the book group to, to have a have a read of. But um, 
Uh, yeah, I, I would actually give it to anybody who, who read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, um, because uh, that's all millions, so I'm sure everybody's got a copy. They may be using it yeah. to keep their bathroom door open, but, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, this is condensed. I, for me, it's a, it's a much better book. Just from a, a, a writerly point of view, it's, it, it's really nothing is wasted. Everything is paired back. There are none of the little diversions and um, uh, the Tristram Shandy style mini stories that, that she did in, in uh, Jonathan Strange. This is one uh, gripping tale from beginning to end. What about you, Andrea? What, what would you, what would, what's your gift that you would, just draw that again. What, what book would you give as a gift to somebody? Um, well, I've, I've got two, two choices for today. And one would be for someone who I know likes reading and I would give a fiction, like a novel to. Mm. And one would be for like other people who I, who may or may not enjoy reading fiction as much as we all do. And you still have to give them something. So um, if I, to start with a fiction novel it was published was published last year but i read it this year and it's certainly on my list of the best books for this year it's it's called fleischman is in trouble i don't know if you read that did you read it i kept hearing a lot about that one i mean it's it's um it's fantastic it's by um taffy broadiser Ackner, which has such a she has such a tricky name for me to remember but she it's it's just so well written and it all begins with toby fleischman he wakes up in his flat in new york his very nice flat in new york thank you very much and he finds that his ex-wife has dropped off the kids in his flat during the night while he was sleeping and just disappeared so he was all set for like a weekend of his new single divorced life um, you know, dating widely, seeing the kids on weekends and, you know, having quite a nice life as a moderately successful doctor in New York. But then this particular weekend, he then kind of annoyed, goes, oh, well, okay, I have to change my plans and because I've got the kids unexpectedly. And he calls his ex-wife and she doesn't pick up the phone. So he gets through the weekend thinking that she would turn up on the Sunday night to pick them up again. And she doesn't. And she basically has just disappeared. He can't get hold of her. He calls her secretary or assistant or whoever it may be at her work who just says, oh, yeah, I can take a message. So he now has to parent full time, single parent full time. And he's, you know, he's been an active dad. He's been involved in his kid's life. And he thinks that he's got this, but he starts to find that the parenting takes a toll on his actual life routine. He's, um, he is suddenly finding it quite difficult to juggle everything and dating isn't really an option when you've got two kids full time and his bosses are not so understanding when he has to take his kids with him to work. And this is all the, the setup. And I can't really tell you a lot about what's gonna happen without giving it away and it's such a phenomenal book there's a, a point in the book that's where just there's one sentence where everything you think you know just changes and from that point on for the rest of the novel you're you're it's like someone has taken out your eyeballs and swapped them for new eyes 
because you, <laughs> you just everything you see you see with a completely different view um and it's it's just super clever and when you get to the conclusion of this book you're just absolutely it's it's like you're hit by a speeding bus um and when when all of that sort of that whirlwind of emotion settles you're just absolutely gobsmacked by how clever she is how like how incredible she is to have put together this phenomenal story and i just i just want everybody to read it so we can talk about it but this <laughs> is one of those situations where i want to give it to everybody because i love it but i'm not sure i'd give it to everybody because i'm not sure they would love it as much so i would suggest that uh, it's a great 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 present for people who are who like reading fiction women who like reading fiction in particular, career women, mothers, people who have opinions on, on equality, perhaps, and it's brilliant. You've reminded me of another category of book that I was so focused on the short stories, fairy tales side <laughs> of things because of research for today that I completely forgot that I do get people novels, but what I tend to do is there's a category that I call, it's not particularly exciting, it's enjoy on the day. So I often yeah. try and get people comfort reads or kind of quick reads like like you've just described, you know, you'd race through something like that. You know, it's got a sounds like it's got a really good twist, like you, you don't see coming, something like that. So I'd get them like a fun thriller if they were into thrillers or I think I've I've given the Rosie Project to quite a few people in my life as well. Um, and I think one of my favorite purchases for somebody her, was the secret diary of uh, Adrian Mole, aged thirteen and three quarters. So I think if you if you understand someone's sense of humour and you manage to get a book that taps into that, or a quick light read that they can like flick through on Christmas Day or when whenever they have some free time, I think that's that's another category of book that I go for as well, light and fun. Yeah. What would you what What have you got for today? Have you got a collection of short stories? I do. I have two and I'll, I'll briefly tell you about them. So I've, I've done a Venn diagram for the first one because I actually don't have a copy to show you. So this is completely useless for anybody listening. And, and I realize how stupid that is at, at this moment. Um, so for anybody watching on YouTube, here is the Venn diagram. And it says here, people who like cooking and people who like books. And in the middle, the perfect middle here, we have something called the Little Library Cookbook by Kate Young. That's genius. And I'm just going to copy that for my next recommendation. <laughs> Fantastic. I'd like to be inspiring with my Venn diagram. Yes. So the Little Library Cookbook by Kate Young actually began as a blog called the Little Library Cafe, I believe. Um, and then obviously so many recipes um, on the blog, it developed into a book, um, was really, really popular. And it is what it says, what you would imagine it would be from the title. So she has a collection of books at home. She loves literature. She also loves cooking. And what she did was she went through all of these books and decided to try and recreate the recipes. And for some of those recipes, it's quite clear what the food is and quite easy to replicate and make. Um, for some of them, all she has to go on is a name of something that's mentioned in the book and she has to kind of be creative and come up with it herself. But for example, if you've ever wanted to have Paddington's marmalade, you'll find a recipe for it in the Little Library Cookbook. And um, before each recipe, she includes the little paragraph or excerpt that she's found in the book that she's got the recipe from and the little description of how she interpreted that in the book 
uh, what the book means to her. Often there's a lot of like childhood memories in there as well. And then there's a recipe that you can make. So it's a really lovely read as well as something that you can use if you, if you love a particular book and you say you like Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, you can have the afternoon tea from Rebecca. You can put that together. Um, and I know how much you love Northern Lights, Andrea by Philip Pullman. Yep. So one bit that I wanted to read to you was a recipe that she got from Bear. And to give you an idea of how the book is written. So also, side note, The Little Library Christmas with 20 of the original recipes and 30 new ones came out in October this year, if anybody's looking for a, something a little more Christmassy. So this is an excerpt for a hot chocolate that comes from Northern Lights. Um, I think you remember there was, it wasn't called hot chocolate, it was called, do you remember? No, I, I remember the, the wine they were drinking in Oxford. It was called Chocolato. Although you can actually, you can actually buy that wine. Yeah, it's like a, an Eastern European wine. Yes, isn't it? exactly. Top, top something. Uh, Tokai. 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 Yes, that's right. Yeah, and the, and the chocolate is Chocolato after the Aztec, you know, or the, the Inca or whatever. Good knowledge. So this is, this is what she said about kind of the, where the recipe came from. She said, I was recently having dinner with a friend when I happened to mention that hot chocolate always makes me think of Mrs. Coulter. She looked at me blankly and I realized with a jolt that she hadn't yet read the books. She had them all <gasps> ahead of her. I was instantly what? jealous. <laughs> I, think we, I think we can, we can uh, uh, empathize with that. By the time we reached my front door, I was dreaming about making the perfect hot chocolate, one that was dark, rich, sweet, and heavily spiced. I spent the next week playing around with recipes, enjoying the warmth that the thimblefuls of differently spiced hot chocolate provided. The recipe below is a new favorite, the perfect weapon for Mrs. Coulter, or if you have slightly less sinister plans, dessert for you and a friend. Annabelle, do you not think actually this book would be a brilliant book to get if you wanted to do a uh, a bookish dinner party, right? Absolutely. Yes. It, you know, you could theme each course around yeah. a different book because there was a key recipe within it. Yeah, it also ties into um, another trend that I'm quite fond of, which is buy gifts for yourself. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I support that. I support that. I think that's an excellent thing to do. All right, so The Little Library Cookbook by Kate Young. It's a book I recommend all the time. Great choice for Christmas, but also beyond. Do you have a second book, Mark? It's actually a book that probably everybody's heard about, and it's not new. It's not from this year. It's uh, from 1870. But it's a book I put off until this year for all the reasons that we've been talking about long books, being, you know, having this, this delay factor. And um, it's Middlemarch by George Eliot oh, um, wow. and you know it was always on all the lists at school and I never read it and you know Virginia Woolf says it's the only novel written for grown-ups you know in the English language and all this kind of stuff so eventually I got around to it and I realized that actually if someone had sold it to me in a different way then I would have read this I'd have, I'd have read this five times already if someone had said this is the best soap opera you've ever read I might have gone for it right you know to start off with not that I'm a great fan of soap opera but it just it's 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 got all the hallmarks of a great soap opera so you think about it right the great soap operas Dallas Emmerdale Coronation Street they're all about places right they all start with a place name and Middlemarch is this this kind of 
you know, this Balkan crisp of, uh, of Middle England. It's, it's actually modeled on Coventry, I'm told, um, from near there. So maybe there's a, an affinity. But, but there's a kind of this little world in which there are so many intrigues in which, you know, the background of the, the Great Reform Act is, you know, seething away the, the rivalries between the different classes, the, um, you know, the manufacturing interests, the, the new scientific kind of discoveries. All of this is bubbling away underneath this, um, this fantastic plot line. Now, the reason that I really would put this right to the top of all the best soap opera ever is that um, George Eliot writes with such intelligence and kindness. All of her characters, yes, they have vices and virtues in different mixes, but you, they're all fully, they're members of your family, they're neighbors, they're people you know. There's a, there's a, a realism to them which is exquisite. Um, and, you know, bearing in mind it was written you know, in the middle of the 19th century. The characters are so real, it actually makes Dickens look like a cartoon strip. That's how I felt when I, you know, kind of finished. It was, it was it's actually a good antidote if you don't like Dickens. Um, <laughs> but there are two kind of, there are a, a number of great characters drawn through it, but, but the main one, uh, there are two. Dorothea Brooke, who is the, the heroine, is intelligent. She is graceful. I think she's probably George Eliot. But she's got a blind side. She can't see the passion that others have for her. She, she's emotionally naive. She gives her a tremendous dimension. And then Dr. Lydgate, who's the, the, um, another male lead, he's a hero of modern medicine, you know, knocking down the old you know, uh, quackery of, of the 18th century. You know, he wants to dispense modern medicine and bring the world forward, kill cholera, etc., etc. Yet, he is a fool for love. So there are all of these wonderful mixes in the characters. And there's the epitome of evil, you know, Raffles, who, who, who's, who who's, has, is the source of all the secrets kind of unravel. But the big baddie is not Raffles, it's money. Because all of the bad stuff that comes out of Middlemarch has come about because of financial chicanery, the wrong will, the right will, the, um, you know, fraud, um, all of this stuff that is... Again, a sign of the times when money was becoming more important. But, you know, the question is, will goodness conquer all in the end? And, and over 800 pages, you know, it manages to just, George Eliot manages to, to keep your attention, keep you absolutely spellbound. And even liking the, the kind of neutral and negative characters, she's absolutely masterful. And I wish I discovered this, you know, many years ago. Have you read it, Annabelle? Yes, um, and it's not a book I would ever want to reread, but partly because I remember reading it for assigned reading for university, and I was dreading it, you know, for because of the way it had been presented. And uh, yeah, no, just I, the feeling that I am still left with when I think about Middlemarch is just this overwhelming sense of what a perfect book. And and every time I think about it, I still can't believe that a human being wrote it because, like you said, it's just it's full of such empathy for all of its characters sometimes I think when I was reading that you know it's one of those books where you can't believe that they aren't real um, mm. and you expect them to just walk through the door and I felt that about the goldfinch as well yes yeah actually I think empathy is a, is a it maybe that's one of the reasons why particularly right now a book like Middlemarch actually grips you a bit more because you know empathy is the quality that I think we're all 
we're all looking for, we're all discovering, we're all developing, we're all trying mm. to encourage, you know, with, with friends and colleagues. And, and, and you know, um, it seems to be the thing that the world needs now, right? And so I, I suspect that empathy books will do, will do well this year. On the last episode of the Boundless Book Club, that's what we were, what we were talking about. That's oh. true, yeah. 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 Well, I wasn't, but uh, I think Andrea Ahlam, Isabel, and Mimi Nicklin were. So do check out that episode if you haven't already and you are listening or watching. Yes, yeah. Well, I will do. So second, second book um, for you, Andrea. So uh, just because I don't want to be outdone, this is my <laughs> diagram beautiful for anyone watching it yes it's it's it took me a long time to prepare what you can see on my diagram for everybody who's only listening it's really quite stunning it's um gorgeous far superior yeah it says health um books and food and then in the middle where they all intersect you get the doctor's kitchen by uh dr rupi Aushla, who is an actual real doctor who's written a, a book about how to eat for health effectively earlier today i was i was listening as i was driving i was listening to a podcast where they're talking about how we all seek out we seek out the information that confirms our bias so that's why i've highlighted this little bit where it talks about how good cinnamon is for you because that's kind of the bias that i want to see confirmed always um cinnamon is aromatic antioxidant packed flavor bomb it's good. It's got anti-inflammatory qualities, Im improves metabolic syndrome, whatever that might be. And also it's like the most delicious thing. So if Dr. Rupi says we should eat it, then I'm all for it. So the first part of the book is all explains how certain ingredients are good for you and why. Um, and then you get to the second half of the book, which is all recipes. And you get things like this. I'm showing a picture of a beautiful lemongrass curry, Thai curry. Um, and it's got lots of different recipes that all look wonderful. I don't really cook very much, but they look great. And this is a sort of book that I think you could give to pretty much anyone, even if they don't like books. I can't think anyone who would want to cancel a friendship after receiving this. Um, so that's hey. my top tip. <laughs> <laughs> that's always good, especially if, if you're under yeah. time pressure. It's like, what would they not hate? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And also, if you give it to someone who doesn't like it, it's a great gift for them to give on to someone else without Ooh, telling you. Regift potential. Mm. That's we haven't even got we haven't got time to even go into that. <laughs> That's a very good point. What's yours? Okay, so my second book, very quickly, it's uh, *The Merry Spinster* by Daniel Mallory Lavery, um, and it is subtitled *Tales of Everyday Horror*. And yes, this is a book that I would give to somebody during the festive period. So I would give it to anybody who likes, say, The Nightmare Before Christmas or Krampus or kind of festivity, but with a, with a dark twist. So I don't have a Venn diagram for this one, but my flowchart would be, um, do you like fairy tales? If yes, do you, are you a little bit twisted? Yes, read this book. Um, and it, it basically tackles uh, fairy tales that you'd be familiar with. Um, so if I just open the book very quickly, I'll give you an idea. And it's not just fairy tales, it's also childhood stories as well that are tackled. So you've got uh, The Little Mermaid is tackled, you've got um, Cinderella, all of those kind of classic ones with a dark 
twist. Now, some are a bit more straightforward than others, as you as you get with fairy tale retellings. And that the thing that I think makes them a good gift, a retellings of myths and fairy tales, is that there is a sense of comfort in them, no matter how dark they are. Because especially if they are myths and tales that that person is familiar with from their culture, then there will be a sense of, okay, I know where I am with this. But there's also a sense of, okay, but what have they done with it? You know, what's new, what's fresh? So it's familiar, but it's also new. And one story in particular that I was going to read from to give you an idea of how it can be properly chilling is my favorite story of the collection. Um, And it's the reason why, even if I didn't like any of the other stories, I would still recommend it. It's his retelling of The Velveteen Rabbit, which I think is a universally loved children's story. Lovely, happy, beautiful story. And in this collection, it's entirely ruined. (laughs) So the rabbit is a rather sinister rabbit. Um, And after I read this, I had to go... Um, and uh, watch something a bit happy because it really freaked me out. You're welcome. Um, So he's talking to, the rabbit is talking to another toy in the toy room in which we find him. And he's asking all sorts of questions about how do you become real from a toy that has managed to do that. He says, can you take someone else's real, he asked, or are you stuck having to get it brand new each time on your own? The skin horse looked at the rabbit then. What I mean is, the rabbit said carefully, and his voice was a crawling black thing across the floor. If something else was already real, could you take it from them and keep it for yourself? No, the skin horse said, you can't take real from another toy. A truth which was no small relief to the skin horse, who was no fool and could tell in what direction the conversation was tending, but the rabbit had not yet finished with his questions. Can you take the real out of a boy then? And then it continues. That's amazing. That's like Tim Burton on the page. Yeah. So it's that that sort of thing. If you like Nightmare Before Christmas, that that sort of thing. It's it's a great collection. Not just at festive time, but just beyond. Yeah. So that's my second recommendation. Properly creepy. Brilliant. That's a great way to end this happy <laughs> gifting. Yeah. I need another Venn diagram. <laughs> But that's all for today. We hope this has inspired you to give a few more books to the important people in your life, whether it's for birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, or seasonal celebrations. We'd also like to know if you've ever been given a book that you love that was very meaningful to you as a gift, or indeed, have you ever been given a book that has ruined your friendship or relationship to the gift giver? Please let us know on social media or send us an email you can send an email to comms at emiratesliftest.com mark thank you so much for joining us today this has been great and thank you for your recommendations pleasure fun thanks for tuning in next time we will be looking at some fantastic and unexpected combinations of books that make the perfect companion pieces does that sound strange because it might well be so don't forget to hit subscribe and make sure you don't miss it That is all for now. Thank you.